So yeah, good afternoon. That was uh, very obedient of you guys there. It usually takes a few, uh, hello, hello. So thank you for that. Um, so for those who don't know me, and um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott Hill. I think I'm more now the other Scott, um, and I'm continuing this sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, next week, um, many of us will be going to the church weekend away, and then the following week we're starting our Lenten series as well. So it's kind of like a small introduction, really, to the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who were there, who were here last week, Scott spoke about what it meant to be the salt and light of the world that Jesus spoke about. <clears throat> and the passage today is more about the nitty-gritty of what that looks like. It's almost like, it feels like it's a PG warning. We're going to be talking things like murder and anger, adultery, lust, uh, divorce. So it all sounds very good, doesn't it? Uh, but uh, it's challenging stuff. But I think what the whole purpose is that Jesus wants us to become people who are people that love. And often that means that we have to look through into our hearts to figure these things out and work them through. So we'll start with the, the, the passage. It's in Matthew chapter 5. Um, it's a long passage, so, so, so bear with me. I think it should come up here now. Thanks, Ella. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do while you're still together or on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said that people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill it to the Lord, the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black, if you have hair, all you need is to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. The key verse in this passage is, is verse 20, when Jesus says, until, for I tell you, until your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teach the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. For me, the word righteous is quite a religious sort of word. I, I don't really use it in day-to-day -day language. I don't know about you guys. But it's, like a, it's a, a Greek work that would have been used a good bit by Plato and people like that. It's really about virtue, your inner goodness, your kind of right living. 
So Jesus is saying that we all have that. We all have a sort of worldview of what that looks like. And the Pharisees, the teacher of law, had the Torah to guide them. But then this other word, um, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word enter as well is, is kind of sometimes confusing as well. I think when we think about the word enter, it's like entering the gates, the pearly gates, and St. Peter will be there. And whether you've obeyed these new laws, even harder laws that Jesus has commanded, you won't enter into heaven. But again, it's probably missing the point. The kingdom of heaven is not just a place we go to. It's a place that comes to us. It inhabits our hearts. It inhabits our lives. It can inhabit our communities. It's a culture. It's an experience. So it's really saying, if you want to engage with this new way of living, if you want to experience the promises of God, if you want to experience transformation in your life and the people around you, I'm not barring you, but you've got to find a new way of living life that goes beyond this law of the Pharisees and the scribes. And John chapter 1 really describes these two ways of living. It says on the one hand, it says that Moses, and it's a great similarity between Jesus on, his, on the mountain giving a new law, let's say, or a new way of doing life, and Moses brought a, new, a way. And it says that Moses, through Moses came the law, and through Jesus came grace and truth. So Jesus is saying, unless your virtue, your right way of living goes beyond that of the law, you can't, and into this idea of grace and truth, you can't experience this reality. Now, law is useful. It gives a sense of control and order in our lives, and as a society, is essential, but slightly different as a person and how you do things. It becomes quite black and white, your worldview. You can become quite rigid. Yes, if you live a life of chaos, you do need a certain level of law. But Jesus is saying, don't stop there. You've got to move to the next step, which is this life of grace and truth. I, um, this week I was working, I work in an addiction center and I was working with this lady this the last few weeks. And like many people who come in with addiction, um, she had a sense, uh, she didn't really have a reality check of the impact her addiction has caused on her and her family, her three daughters and her husband and even and her siblings as well. And she said to me this week, Scott, I never really realized the impact that my addiction has had on all my family, and I'm beginning to realize that now. She was beginning to get the sense of truth in her life. But she was missing the other aspect which is of grace, because she was saying, now that I realize the impact it's had on everyone in my life, I can't live with myself. I don't even know if I should go home, because I know the things I've done have hurt them, and if I go home again, I'll hurt them. And it was almost paralyzing her from moving forward, paralyzing her shame and her guilt. So in some way, she did get the truth aspect, but she didn't have the grace aspect. And when we read these scriptures, Jesus is saying, I haven't come to bring the law. That was through Moses. Important. I've come to give you grace and truth. So many of us can become half blind when we read scripture. Either just have the grace or just have the truth. If we have no truth, no sense of wisdom, of self-awareness, of working through our issues, we can become immature and superficial in our lives. And the things that we don't notice, our blind spots, can prevent us from really fully loving the people in our lives, the issues that we have that we haven't dealt with. Oh, God loves me. That's great. But you don't willing to go deeper. And likewise, what this lady that I call Joan, if you don't have the grace, you can live a life of shame, of guilt, of anxiety, of workaholism to, to, to kind of prove a point, to, to keep that anxiety down, that sense of never really bring it up. And so with these passages, I'm going to really just briefly go on because there's more, Jesus talks more about this, but the key I wanted to even just for you guys to take home is view the scripture of Jesus in this grace and truth 
not in this legalistic way. So the one of the ones I want to look at is anger. And I suppose, first of all, anger is not a sin. Yes. <laughs> but anger is dangerous. <laughs> you know, Jesus did get angry, you know, at times. One of the moments where he got angry was he was healing this man with a sickness in his arm. And the Pharisees didn't want to do that because he was breaking the law of the Sabbath. And he was so indignant. It talks about God being slow to anger. But anger is dangerous. So anger, in some ways, is like an alarm clock. It wakes us up. It lets us know there's a reaction that something, something has thwarted my will. One of the things that makes me angry most, that thwarts my will, is losing stuff. Where's my keys? I'm late for work. And the anger starts to build. Or Zoe, we're late for church. Ugh. Not like late gets me, gets me annoyed. It's thwarting my will. But anger is dangerous. You know, they say that anger is the one motion that's the most dangerous for a physical body. It causes all sorts of physical illnesses, anger does. But what Jesus really wants to emphasize here, because this is all about his ethic of love and how we need to get on in this world, it is so dangerous for our relationships. I used to think I never had anger issues until I had kids. <laughs> because there's different types of anger. There's hot anger, which is, you know, we're loud and we're, we're, we attack and criticize, and I know people in my family like that. But there's also cold anger. It's quite a subtle because you don't think you're angry when you're cold. It's you withdraw. How are you? No, I'm fine. Do you have any issues? No, no, grand. And that kind of withdrawing away brings a disconnecting. So either anger pushes people away or withdraws from people, and both can be very toxic for relationships. So anger is harmful when, first of all, and powerful when it becomes unchecked. Because Jesus talks about this passage, this kind of conveyor belt that anger does. Once you're on the anger conveyor belt, it can lead to difficult situations. So he says, you know, first step is you're angry with your brother and you're in judgment. But then if you go the next step and you call your brother Raka, you're in serious trouble. And the third, if you call your brother or sister, you fool you're in serious trouble then. So what are these terms? Well, raka is a term of contempt. So it's like a step out of the anger. You're beginning to start to harm people with your anger. And if you keep going with that anger and don't let it unchecked, don't manage it, don't acknowledge it, don't analyze it, you can move into malice, which is cruelty and abuse. One of my favorite uh, couple therapists that I read a bit about is called John Gottman. And he became famous in a book called Blink because he was able to predict relationships with divorce, and one of the biggest predictors, he says, was the, the idea of contempt. It says this, that he says that contentment, being content, contempt, sorry, is the most destructive negative behavior in relationships. In Dr. Gottman's four decades of research, he's found it to be the number one predictor of divorce. When we communicate with contempt, we are truly mean, treating others with disrespect, mocking them with sarcasm and condensation, and all forms of contempt. So a hostile humor, name-calling, mimicking, and body language, just eye-rolling and sneering, are all forms of this. At the end of the day, though, simply put, contempt is saying, I'm better than you, and you are lesser than me. And you can see that we, I've been there when you get to that point of anger that you begin to do that. The other thing, though, like if you think about anger like a fire, and there's a bit of a flame at the start, and it can get out of control quite quickly. The other thing with anger is that we have to feed it. And nothing likes anger, anger likes nothing better to be fed 
but a sense of self-entitlement and a sense of self-righteousness. Nothing better to be self-righteous in your anger. I am a cyclist, and I commute to, to work every day, and there's nothing better. I'm angry sometimes when a car turns left and crashes into me, but like, if they start to do it, I can feel a bit angry, and that's okay, I'm just a little bit warning. But then I go, how dare you? I've got a sense of self-entitlement here. This is my cycle lane. How dare you for turning there? I am right. And it kind of feels good almost being angry that way. But then if we just let that simmer away in our relationships, it can build bitterness, it can build resentment, and we become just angry people, which is not conducive for love and relationships. So Jesus says, you've got to reconcile is the most important. Do it quickly. Even sacrifice good religious things about doing gifts on altars and temples or, or in the, whatever the religious act is. Leave, that's not as important as reconciling with your friend, with your, with your family member. It's about valuing the other person. It's, it's taking a risk to have these difficult conversations. It's about valuing the relationship. It's about seeing Christ in them. Is it worth, I don't want to keep withdrawing. I want to acknowledge I've been hurt and let's talk this thing through. So important to work through the hurts that we've happened to us, the harm that's happened to us, but not to hold it and turn into bitterness and withdrawal from the relationship. It's complex and messy. Often things are very, aren't ever fully get reconciled, but it's an attempt to love one another. Now on to the, the one you've all been waiting for, adultery and divorce. Well, I, I remember reading this passage for so, you know, over the years, and I think... As an excited, hormonal teenager, the sheer terror of reading this about lusting after women would freak me out. And then often, reading with a literal mind, I was freaking out about body parts being cut away and going to hell. So between a fear and a complete sense of shame, this was a freaked out passage. And then as I get older and I'm reading about divorce, it just gets more complicated and messy. I'm like, Jane, how am I going to get out of this today? But one thing that mentioned when I read it this time is that I've been reading this from, a funny, from only one perspective. I've been reading it from a man's point of view. And I began to realize that actually when reading about Jesus talking about adultery and talking about divorce, he was mainly, I think he was talking more about how men in society mistreat and objectify and harm women. Maybe it's because I'm a father of two daughters, maybe... In college this week, we were talking about gender and issues like that. But as I was beginning to read this, I felt such, such sadness that I'd been reading this passage from a male perspective. What else in my life have I only been seeing things from a male perspective? To objectify for one's pleasure, to dehumanize and destroy relationships. Jesus was after that. Look, it's, you, can, you can say in your legalistic way, oh, no, I don't sleep around, I don't do this. But how do you treat a woman? Do you only give attention to someone that's externally beautiful? How do you do this? What do you have going on in your heart? And with divorce, again, Jesus was talking to a context at that time that a good few rabbis was incredibly dehumanizing women, that all you needed to do if you weren't happy in a relationship was just get a piece of paper of divorce, certificate of divorce, get the right person to stamp it or sign it, get the right rabbi who will support you in it, and you can leave a woman for anything. And of course, in the culture back then, in a very male-dominated culture, that made women very, very vulnerable. It was devastating for that woman. So Jesus was challenging the flippancy, the selfishness, the harm that this patriarchal society that he was in. In her book, Jesus Feminist by Sarah Basie, she puts this way, 
patriarchy is not God's dream for humanity. It never was, it never will be. Instead, in Christ and because of Christ, we're invited to participate in the kingdom of God through a redemptive movement for both men and women towards equality and freedom. A writer that I often comes across is a lady called Dorothy Sayers, who's kind of around the 1920s, 1930s. She was, I think, the first woman to get a degree in Oxford, and she got a first as well, and she was a follower of Jesus. And reflecting what it means to be a woman and following Jesus, she said this, Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this man. They'd never been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without quarrellessness and praised without condensation, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no easy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. It's a good quote, isn't it? And the more you read the scriptures, the more you can see how much Jesus was so radical with women, how he loved them. And as he just saw this sort of legalistic system doing ticking the right box, not sleeping around, and if you're divorcing, just throwing the right certificate, how this was just surface level change. The last one, I'll really just comment on it before we finish. Jesus talks about oaths, about not swearing and, or swearing about this and that. And again, in my upbringing of reading scripture quite literally, I remember the first time I was in court, not for a crime I committed, just to confirm. Um, in, in my role as a, as a social worker, I had to give evidence, and they put the Bible out, and you had to swear in it. I was, oh, I remember, I think my mum saying I should never swear in the Bible, because then Jesus, Jesus said it, and I was like, oh. And everyone's looking at me, and I'll do it, it's okay. <laughs> and again, I don't think Jesus was talking about that, really. I think... What comes across a lot for me when I'm working with families and relationships and there's difficulties and there's an inability for people to love, they always say something like, oh, we just don't communicate very well or we have communication issues. And I think it's always like a catch-all term. But I think Jesus is talking about something like this. There's nothing kind of that, that annoys people and frustrates them when communication is incongruent. So it's like, oh, how are you doing today? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Um, do you have any issues? No, no, I'm grand. So all their body and tone are saying one thing and their voice and their words are saying another thing. And it can lead a sense of frustration and distrust. And Jesus is just saying here, look, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. I know a lot of Christians are so bad at saying no to things. It's okay to say no. Um, no, uh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then they come and sign up for something. I know we're trying to get people to sign up for something. And they... And they go with such a heavy heart. And it's just like, you don't really want to be here. No, no, I do, I do. And I think just in relationships, Jesus just saying, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'll get the band up now as we finish. Thanks, Gina. It was interesting. I, I was speaking at the 10 o'clock service as well today. And that was good fun too. And I had an image at the end. And Rob said it was quite a similar idea that he had at the 8.30 service. So it's great to hear that God is speaking to us. And the image was this idea of um, grace and truth. I was just had this image of a, a sort of a deep sea diver that needs to go down and deep. 
and there might be monsters down there, there might be things that are difficult to confront, but there's also great treasure and great beauty down there. And that's the pursuing of the truth of our hearts. But it without the protection of an oxygen mask or a submarine, the pressure and the fear will be too much. And that's why God has called us, Jesus is calling us to have both the grace and the truth to go deeper. And as in the next 10 days will be Ash Wednesday, and we begin to look at these things in our hearts and also begin to look at the cross, I just love what the cross does, what the cross says to us, what it has accomplished. It says, you know, you're forgiven for the things that you've done, but you're also healed by the things that have been done to you. You know, Isaiah in chapter 53 says the, you know, by, you know, he's been pierced for our sins and our transgressions, but also we are healed by his wounds. So for many people maybe listening here, it's like, Scott, I've been so hurt and I've been so damaged by how, what society, what people have done to us. And the cross says, you know, we can be, we can not just put our sins on the cross, but we can put our wounds on the cross as well and be healed. And for us who feel so guilty and shame, we can put our brokenness on that cross and be forgiven. Let's pray. Jürgen Moltmann, a theologian love, says this, the love of God, which is infinitely capable of suffering, reaches us in Christ. His love is passion, passion for human beings and their worth, passion for the creation and its peace. So Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would give us the freedom and the confidence to go exploring with you into the depths of our hearts. Give us your grace, your unmerited, unconditional love to allow us to explore the depths of our heart. May we not be Christians, or if we're just still on the outside trying to follow you, may we not be people of superficial, legalistic ways of doing life, but when we go deep, for with grace and truth, we become loving people. We become salt and light to this earth.